Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. A couple of things to let you know about off the top. We are going to be doing a live Book Shambles at Deershed Presents uh, podcast social club on November 23rd. That's a Saturday. Uh, We'll be doing that at the Rural Arts Centre in Thirsk. Robin will be there, hopefully Josie as well. And we don't know who the guest is yet, but uh, we'll let you know when we've sorted that out. Tickets for that are from podcastsocialclub.com or the Cosmic Shambles site. Uh, Signals is on tour throughout October. Robin is on tour with Chaos of Delight throughout November. Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People in Salford and London coming up at the end of November and throughout December. Added a few new guests to the site this week. Uh, People like Smitten and James Nikise and Matt Stellingworth and Jen Gupta and lots of others as well. So go and check that out. Uh, We've got a few secret surprise guests lined up as well as always. And we announced this week as well, as you know uh, or may not know, all the profits from the Nine Lessons shows go to charity each and every year. And this year, the two charities we're going to be supporting are Two Wheels for Life, which we've worked with in the past. And uh, we've got a documentary coming out soon uh, with some of the work that they do with uh, electric uh, and renewable energy in motorcycles and uh, healthcare in Africa. Uh, Helen Chersky's presented that documentary. That'll be coming out on the Cosmic Shambles Network soon. And also our Click Sergeant, who works with our young people and families uh, with young people dealing with and living with cancer. And also the Trussell Trust, as always, will be collecting for the Trussell Trust at each and every show, including the shows at the Lowry in Salford. Uh, We'll be putting up the most needed items on the website uh, closer to the time so you can get all that information. Likewise, we'll be collecting for the Trussell Trust at the Hammersmith Apollo for Robin and Brian Cox's Christmas Compendium of Reason on December 6th. There are not many tickets left for that, so make sure you get those now and you are definitely going to want to get tickets. This year's lineup, uh, secret lineup as always, is absolutely bonkers. So do get your tickets for that now. Again, profits from that show go to charity. So we hope to see you there. New Science Shambles podcasts are out. Uh, Speaking of Signals, which is on tour, as I mentioned, in October, when we did that show at various festivals throughout the summer, we often had a panel after talking about some of the science in those shows. So the first of those panel podcasts is out now, recorded at Blue Dot with Helen Chersky and Chris Lintott and Matthew Cobb and Susie Imber. So subscribe to Science Shambles. Uh, support this podcast and everything we do on Patreon. I mention it every week. Thank you, everyone who pledges uh, on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Again, I say this every week, but it doesn't get any less true. We could not do anything we do at Cosmic Shambles, the podcasts, the blogs, the documentaries, the live shows without uh, the support we get from people on Patreon. So thank you very much 
for that. You get extended episodes of Book Shambles. You get lots of other goodies. We're going to be increasing the amount of goodies. We know we've been uh, a little bit lax on that with the amount of tours we've been doing lately. Uh, we've been, you know, people having babies and such things. But we'll be bringing out some new behind-the-scenes access and stuff for that, especially at the Hammersmith and Nine Lessons shows this year. So if you want to see behind-the-scenes of what happens at those gigs, uh, pledge on Patreon. Also, subscribe and like and review on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. And a few other things uh, to mention about this episode in particular, which is with uh, Natalie Haynes and Charlotte Higgins. Spoiler alert, this is an episode about the classics, uh, so there's lots of spoilers for things that were written 3,000 years ago. So if you if you really don't want to know how the Odyssey ends, you know, read it now and then come back to this. And also, uh, more serious as a content warning, while everything, you know, it's obviously in the context of stuff that was written uh, in the 8th century BC, there is some discussion around the topics of sexual violence and suicide in this episode. So just be aware of that. And with that being said, on to this week's episode as we dive into the classics and get very nerdy about the classics with Robin and Natalie and Charlotte. Oh, are we recording now? Because if we are recording now, I can't continue with the sentence. Okay. Yep, we are. We just started. Yes. Um, hello, welcome to Book Shambles. You've just missed a secret conversation between two classicists. No one knows. All I can tell you is they were about to reveal something that was going to bring down the government. Not a contemporary <laughs> government, a government from somewhere in Greece uh, many, many centuries ago. Um, but there was actually something more contemporary there as well. Anyway, enjoy imagining what that might have been. Um, we're recording this on the day where the Supreme Court has uh, found that what Boris Johnson did was illegal. So uh, that's generally the ribaldry that is going around the room stems from that particular news story. Um, but time has moved on and who knows where we'll be in our dystopian future by the time you're actually hearing this, even if you actually have the mechanisms where you can hear it, because there's a strong possibility that all the machines will have been smashed by now. Anyway, let's talk about the happier times when <laughs> the, the uh, happier times of the long, long distant past. I'm joined uh, again by Natalie Haynes. Hello, hello. Um, and also Charlotte Higgins, who is going to you're going to talk about mazes and hello. you're going to talk about... This, this is one I am sitting this one out okay. because here are two classicists uh, and uh, you well, let's start off so, so your, your most recent book is you're saying it's, it's, it's a big it's a flamboyant it's a colourful book it is about uh, mazes and it is uh, about labyrinths that is absolutely correct well done well done um, it is a labyrinthine book about the idea of the labyrinth it starts from the idea, it starts from the story of the myth of the labyrinth, the original story. So Theseus and the Minotaur and King Minos. And so that the is the first, the first labyrinth, the first kind of idea of, of, of that form of, of puzzle, that the Minotaur is the first. Essentially, essentially, yes. Although weirdly, the word labyrinthos is, first appears in surviving Greek literature in Herodotus to describe an enormous Egyptian tomb complex. But that, we're getting very geeky. But I feel so happy about being here because Natalie and I can be really, really classics geeky together and everyone will just have to put up with it. They'll just have to live with it, yeah. Yeah. This is like what happens when we normally hang out. But then normally all the other people there are also... Massive Nerdy. nerds. Yeah. yeah. There's not lunch money between us, is there? There's not a single person who made it through a school day with their own lunch money. That's just true in any conversation we ever have. 
I was just thinking, because the reason I asked is that, you know, obviously it is a bit weird and nerdy to be teenage girls obsessed by Latin and Greek. And I was just wondering, I don't think we've ever really talked about that. But um, I kind of feel like I was very undefended. I was very undefended as a kid. And, you know, it was quite, you know, I suffered. I mean, I didn't suffer that much, for God's sake. But, you know, I was sort of teased, not, not bullied so much, but teased a lot. And plus, it was the kind of school where you, being clever wasn't cool, so that had to be overcome. But I sort of pushed through it by the sixth form. I came 13th in the election to be a prefect or head girl, and the first 12 were picked to be prefect or head girl. And I, I recognised at the time that coming 13th was therefore was absolutely brilliant. It was the coolest thing I could have done because I didn't have to be prefect or head girl, but I was still reasonably popular. But, yeah... I think also yeah, I, I would did... never have stood for an election of anything. I would have always been, you know, on the sidelines making the ungenerous of... remarks about <laughs> the very system. <laughs> I think it was weirdly compulsory. There was some there was something incredibly messed up yeah, about it. Hey teenage thing. girls, compete against each other to yeah. see who's most popular and then let us make public the results. What's yeah. that? Yeah, an eating yeah. disorder, you surprise yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very strange. Very strange. But I also I do have a theory about why I did these funny Latin and Greek things, is that my my father and brothers and indeed mother, to an extent, were very science-y types. Right. And um, physics and chem and biology, and they were doctors and scientists and stuff, and much older than me, my brothers. And so, and I wasn't actually particularly good at those subjects, and so I, so I think I deliberately, although unconsciously, if you see what I mean, I don't think those are completely incompatible, um, funneled myself into something that literally could not be understood by anyone else in my family. So I did not have any literal or metaphorical eyes over my shoulder saying, well, you've got that wrong. You could have done that better. I would never have made that mistake. So, So that yeah. possession, the this retreat. is mine. This is mine, it's yes. only mine, this is... The retreat into the weird. Yeah, I think classics has a big thing for that, um, in general, because I, I made a doc for Radio 4 a few years ago called Eke Fife. Um, about, um, in fact, I interviewed Matthew um, for that. My partner. Um, He's a professor of classics, yes, and that's how is. we met. Um, <laughs> and it was really interesting going, I think it was the Iris Project um, that they were doing up there, where undergraduates at, in this instance, St Andrews University, go out into local primary schools and they do like one hour, I think, of Latin a week for half a term with these kids. And the school that we went to to talk to the students and the teachers and everybody about it um, is a place called Colton, but spelled Coal Town. It used to be a mining town and, of course, the mine long since gone. And what was so interesting was that I, I had to talk to a bunch of these kids um, because obviously we wanted lots of different voices to the radio, how many of them found Latin to be like a, a secret language yes. and, their, and how supportive their parents were of them learning it because, of course, Latin has... Um, so for such a long time in this country been the preserve of an elite because the vast majority of people who study Latin or Greek are in the private school system, which is 7% of students, the 93%. Um, there are some some schools doing an amazing job teaching Latin and sometimes Greek in the state system. I think I've probably visited almost all of them. Um, Charlotte must have done the others, I reckon. But for the most part, statistically speaking, Latin is the preserve of the rich in this country. It shouldn't be, of course. It belongs to all of us. It's all our histories. And it's so um, not in other countries. Yeah. In Belgium, for instance, yes. Latin is a perfectly ordinary subject yeah. taught by thrillingly young and enthusiastic teachers to perfectly ordinary school students. Yeah, I know. No, I know. It's absurd and ridiculous. What is it then about... This is something <clears throat> we talked to when we, when we had Lem Cisse on as well, which is, what is it 
about certain subjects and certain areas which it seems within the English language world there is um, a, a dismissive attitude. It, it's a, I think there is still a dismissive attitude to a lot of... Uh, well, in fact, anything which looks like it may well not be entirely practical, anything that looks like it's not putting up some shelves or making something out of raw iron, seems immediately to... Oh, well, I mean, what's the point in that? It's a silly old business. <clears throat> yeah, it's a kind of long-running anti-intellectualism in Britain, isn't it? And, and unfortunately, in recent history, classics has both been, uh, you know, come under fire on the right and, and the left. On the right, um, partly um, inadvertently through Boris Johnson being a classicist. So obviously, that's a really terrible, terrible advert for classics. I mean, you know, it's dreadful. Hello, sorry to interrupt the podcast. I hope you're enjoying it and I hope you'll come back after this brief message. Check out the Cosmic Shambles Network online shop. You can get book shambles shirts and tote bags, badge packs, notebooks and all that sort of stuff. There's signed hardback copies of my book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, and I'll personally dedicate them to you as well if you'd like me to. Everything you buy from the shop goes back into helping us continue to make the podcast and all of the science blogs and other things at Cosmic Shambles. But yes, and then there's the sort of Nicky Morgan view that only STEM is important and, and that kind of, I suppose, that sort of Britannia Unchained view that Britain ought to somehow become like Singapore and all students should be doing STEM. I mean, I've got nothing against STEM, but I think the human sciences, the humanities are also really important to understanding the world and, and, to, and to finding out things about the world. And then on, on the left... It's often regarded as just a subject for stuck-up elitists. So it, I think less and less because people like Natalie and Mary Beard and, you know, the whole troupe of sort of, you know, Bethany Hughes and Tom Holland and, you know, there are a lot of people out there. Emily Wilson, of course, Madeline Miller and Pat Barker, all this sort of great richness of novels and writing and thinking and talking about and with classics that people are really unbelievably interested in. So I think all of that sort of popular cultural interest in the subject belies all this this, this anxiety about it politically. Um, so that's what I think. So where yeah. do people start? Because I think a lot of people listening to this may well, in terms of, you know, you, you go into a bookshop and you see that, that enormous number of, you know, the, the, the Penguin Classic series yes. with, with, you know, Herodotus and Juvenal and those. And, and where where is the place? Because I suppose there's two issues here, which is for, for people thinking about, oh, OK, I'm going to go back and I think what's the one that someone told me I should read? The Twelve Caesars? Is that the... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I've got, well, I just bought that the other day in Lyme Regis because yeah. someone said, oh, it's very racy. It oh, it is. Lot, yes, lot, yes, lot of fun. Yes, sex in it. My goodness me! Holy yes. Moly. Oh yes. So so where? Yeah, I just think because two things are of course one is the translation, it's the fire which will change and the everything. fury version of it's sort of the Michael Wolf does the White House, it's Suetonius does the Julio Claudian, so it's it's full of all the goss basically. It's great. But where should you start? start well, Emily Wilson's yeah, obviously is brilliant. Totally it's a really drug. good. Yeah. It's a really good translation. It's smart. It's funny. The introduction. If you want to read the poem first and then come back to the introduction, which is about seventy pages long. Be my guest, but it is brilliant. It's a brilliant, incredibly scholarly, but very accessible essay in its own right. Um, so three cheers for her. Tom Holland's version of Herodotus is really good. Yeah. I think it's a it's a weighty tome. So if you're if you're reading in bed, 
then maybe don't start with that. Go for something a bit smaller. Um, but it's it's a wonderful. I mean, Herodotus is amazing. Apuleius, the Golden Ass. That's really funny. It's lots of source material for Shakespeare. It's uh, an ancient novel in inverted commas. That's an anachronistic term, but it's a, as a work of prose fiction. It's a kind of shaggy dog story. Um, for, you know, it's got a bloke who gets turned into a donkey in yeah, it. Always lots a of fun. Start. Always lots of fun stuff. Bandits, that kind of thing. Sex. Good stories. So what are the books which you would really say that's the point where you knew, oh, this is now my life. This is my, this is, uh, because there has to be a point, a, a trigger point. For me, it's, um, I always say this on stage, it's Aeneid 4, which I had as my A-level set text, which is Dido and Aeneas. Um, it's just the most extraordinary book of poetry. It's so devastating. It's, you know, it's awful, traumatic love affair, and it's Euripides Medea. And I wrote my dissertation, obviously, as you know, I don't have children, people don't have to write in. Um, I wrote my dissertation on Medea and Hecabe, um, so women who kill children. Um, sorry, everyone. Um, and... I just, I read it and thought it was just remarkable. And my dad drove me, because I was still too young to drive, and certainly too young to drive to London, to London to see Diana Rigg play her at the Almeida in Islington. Um, and he brought me down, I think because he had a crush on her from the Avengers, because he's no fool, my dad. Um, and I had never seen anything like it. I had never been in a, I'd never been in a theatre for something that wasn't like a pantomime. Do you know what I mean? I, there wasn't much in the way of Greek tragedy in Birmingham in the 80s, I guess. And so I came down to London and went to a the kind of theatre I had never been to before and saw a Greek play which I had only read before. I'd never seen one performed before. And it was Diana Rigg playing Medea. <laughs> it's just like talk about coming in on a high. And I, even as it was happening, I'm not sure how conscious I was of it, but it was like, this is my life forever now. I will never leave this. And I did for a while. You know, we were on the circuit for mm. a long time together. I was gone for about 10 years of... Uh, a bit less than that probably of just doing stand-up um, but gradually I started to move into writing for well firstly the times I think um, and my classic stuff started to drip into those op-ed columns because it was what I knew about and also because I didn't realize everyone else didn't know it because that's always the way isn't it as you it's one of the kind of actions of growing up is that you realize that the things that you know there is loads of stuff you don't know but there's things that you know that other people don't and classics has always been that thing for me I guess and so for a while it felt like oh this is my this is my thing I can do this I can say this and then and what's happened over the last sort of decade for me is that I've kind of thought oh actually I I, I don't have to have my thing being classics my thing can be taking classics out for everybody else uh, so it's just been a really lovely thing to be able to make the radio show and write the books and be able to say this isn't this isn't my secret thing anymore that it was mm. when I was a teenager. It's for all of you. If you don't want it, that's fair dues. You don't have to buy the book. You don't have to listen to the radio show. That's okay. But you should have the chance. Classics shouldn't be locked up in a box and then, you know, stacked at the top of a tower where regular people can't find it. That's not classics' idea. That's the idea of educationalists and politicians who've decided it should be withheld, withdrawn from everybody and that it should just belong to an elite, and then they've kicked it for being elitist. Like, how is that reasonable? It's not. So I love being able to to be the, you know, the kind of popularising classicist. I know that there are people in classics um, who are really grateful for the, you know, undergraduates I've sent their way. I know that there are equally people who wish I would probably stop talking and, and you know, ruining it for everybody, and that's fair enough. They are no, welcome so again, to that that's opinion. another problem, is it? Popularising, we were again talking about this in an early one, which is that that, uh, that certain people within an, an academic or what mm. might, might be seen as an elite circle go, no, 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 not for other people. 
We like being in this musty leather chair. I think, you know, on the whole... I wrote a book. I wrote a book about Roman Britain called Under Another Sky. It's an excellent book, Charlotte. Thank you. And it, it's a book about Roman Britain. Did I just say that anyway? It is. And Roman Britain is a field of study that that I hadn't. I hadn't studied at university. Um, it, it's it's a subject that I inched my way towards in in a way that wasn't actually directly through my education at all. It was it was through being in the places and looking at the monuments and being on Hadrian's Wall and things like that. But anyway, when I got into it, I quickly realised that it was a very heavily populated field of study and the people populating it were um, archaeologists, um, of course, and sort of military historians, because there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of army, you know, there's a lot of presence of the army in Roman Britain. And particularly after the two world wars, it tended to be army people who did the archaeology and army people who thought about the army. There's a sort of Anyway, it, it felt a bit alien the way it had been studied, not entirely because there's some absolutely brilliant work about Roman Britain, but a lot of this material felt really alien and not my way of thinking about things. I'm not that interested in the army. And um, when the book came out, I was really terrified somehow that all these very lovely archaeologists were going to absolutely haul me over the coals, as were, you know, academic ancient historians. This, it turned out to be... Just like the total opposite. I mean, people were so happy. <laughs> um, I mean, I talked to... I mean, a lot of these people... You know, I talked to archaeologists and put them in the book and I talked to paparologists and put them in the book and so on and so forth. Um, and I didn't really encounter anyone who... who who didn't... who who objected to, to, to that kind of treatment, thank God... And on the whole, I don't, I don't know if this is your experience, Natalie. I mean, maybe, I'm sure there are people who are just, like, heads down, doing their thing, hats off to them, you know, do not have the mindset that is about sharing it widely. And, and you know, I sort of respect that too. You know, someone's got to be in the library with their head down. Sure. Um, but by and large, you don't... The, 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 the classics world I know, the world of professional classicists I know, on the whole, is kind of fun and generous and very free with its knowledge and really helpful. I mean, you know, people, there's always someone who's going to read my manuscript to make sure it's not full of howlers, you know, real acts of generosity. So it's a, I, I find it, it's a very nice world to kind of swim in occasionally. Well, not occasionally, quite a lot, really. And I really appreciate, I really appreciate all that comes with it. You know, it's a nice world and I, I don't find it... I don't find that it's kind of putting its arms over its homework. Um, but thinking what you'd said about um, Aeneid for Natalie, my thing was Catullus because I did Catullus at GCSE and Catullus yeah. is a... Oh, I had Aeneid too at GCSE, which is also brilliant. I had that too. Yeah. But for me, it was sort of Catullus because... So this is a first century BC poet and the poems are very... Well, uh they're of all different kinds, but there are, there, there's a whole bunch of love poems that are incredibly sexy and incredibly immediate and incredibly sort of, um, you know, like tortured pop songs. I mean, very sort of uh, superb for the tortured, you know, the tortured teenage it's soul. It's a perfect match of material and, and audience, isn't yeah. it? It's like teenagers should all get to read Catullus. Yeah, the time and it was to so rude. Him. I mean, our edition it's was bowdlerised as well, so yeah. I had this thing of being quite curious about the poems that had been missed out because they were 
because there 16 were two rude. for example <laughs> hold hands over ears hold hands over eyes hold hands over ears again so what is it going this is Bowdlerise, by the way is one of my favourite words yes the Reverend Bowdler yeah it's yeah. just fantastic yeah so they've taken out entire poems that had to do with anal sex and you know kind 16 of... begins um, essentially with him threatening to actually I literally just tried to get the sentence into the TLS and they made me change it um, but I said 16 begins with um, uh, he's, he, he threatens to punishment fuck um, two men, both orally and anally, and that's the opening line. Mm. Um, and uh, I sent it in. I was like, they're probably going to make me change punishment fuck. Yep, yeah, no, there we go. Violate is what we went for in the end. Um, but... Oh, that's what I saw you put that up on Facebook. You <laughs> yeah. had to remove your punishment fuck. I yeah. did, yeah. yeah. I mean, they yeah, let me quote me fuck from the translation, mm. but they didn't let me say it. But, I mean, punishment fuck is a really accurate depiction of what he said. It's, it's really aggressive. It's really... It's really unpleasant. So yeah. what happens to all these works? I mean, you were saying yours were bowdlerised. So, I mean, there must be a huge period where, where in that kind of name of the rose style, where somewhere the monks kept the secret <laughs> books, you know, this... Well, it wasn't really that bad. This was like a mid-20th century professor of classics from Glasgow University who bowdlerised this edition of Catullus. So all he yeah, had to, to do was go around edition. the corner to, to, to a more grown-up version but that's the way. Oh, no, you but learn. I meant more in, its, oh. in the history of those mm. works. Yeah, I mean there must have, have been periods that the they actually survived. Them. Right, it's really surprising because things like well, juvenile the... they loved yes. because of the morality tale. That, but the, the juvenile is as filthy as Catullus in at his moments. And Catullus, Catullus only survived in a single manuscript, and it was found completely by chance in the 1400s. So it didn't have to go. You know, it's, a, it's an extraordinary survival, but it didn't go through. You know, in a way, a single manuscript in the 15th century is quite a good way to survive, if you see what I mean. Mm. I mean, it was just sitting there, <laughs> innocently. Because if you not were doing being... this at school, this certainly yeah. happened to me. We had, I think maybe it was juvenile, um, and there were chunks of Satire 6, which is the one on women, which is pure filth, um, where there are um, words which are so filthy that you would consult your dictionary and it just wouldn't have them there. Oh, yes. And then when you get to university, they loan you giant dictionaries for the for the three or four years or whatever you're studying for. And obviously, you go, oh, finally I can find out what the plan to it. Just the Greek. Right. <laughs> go to the Greek one, just the Latin. You go, uh, I don't know where the man is putting his hand, but it can't be anything I haven't done. I'm 19 years old. Come on. I remember there was a dictionary I... Um, Looked a word up in the school dictionary. I looked up a word in it, and it just translated it as pudenda muliebris. Yeah, which is the Latin for a fanny, or broadly speaking. But so much worse. But yeah, the thing but, that you're so, supposed to be ashamed of. So, but then, but that's quite a you know, it's quite a grammatically interesting little phrase. That so once you've yeah. once you've once you've unstitched that, you've learned something. So they thought they were hiding it, but in fact, Nosy Parkers, like me and Natalie, just looked it up. And the I also still use it as a defence with... for saying cunt rather than um, virtually any alternative because people always go, or used to go, now they don't bother because I've said it so many times, can't you say vagina? No, it means a sheath, I think you keep a sword in, so that's more sexist, sorry. Um, and then pudenda, it's just so horrible. It's a thing you should be, be ashamed, ashamed of. of. It is the most hateful word. Yeah. Do you know what? No thanks. Yes, quite. <laughs> See so, what yes. I mean about the grammar. But the Catullus also, there was this poem in it, a very long poem that wasn't, filthy remote it's a beautiful short epic poem 408 lines long and in that story in that poem it tells the story of the labyrinth and theseus and ariadne and the minotaur and so i read that when i was about 15 and now i've written this book that kind of starts it has that poem absolutely at its center this book red thread about the mazes and labyrinths and so yeah it's you know these things are incredibly fundamental 
Natalie's book starts, Natalie's A Thousand Ships starts with a version of the story told in Aeneid book two, which she studied for GCSE. Yeah, they get you young, don't they? They get you young. So is there a fun history of... Do you you find various different editions from the mid-19th century onwards where you see the desperation of trying to translate it into... uh, you know, So you find these totally anaesthetised kind of, you know, uh, bowderised and castrated versions of those poems? They normally just didn't do them, or when they did do them... It is kind of strange because there are versions of some of these poems where in order to try and capture the sort of spirit you find a reflection of the often misogyny or homophobia or racism of the time of the translation rather and so it's like I'm not suggesting that you know first century CE Rome wasn't patriarchal I'm just suggesting it's a different kind of misogyny from the kind that you've put in your translation here very good point and yeah. it's, it is yeah. really strange kind yeah. of picking through and that's what was so extraordinary when Emily Wilson's Odyssey came out which I reviewed and you must have reviewed yeah um, and there were properly grumpy colonel type people go how dare she put women in blah 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 and it's like often what she was doing was taking out the the misogynist translation of the last 200 years rather than doing anything to homer at all so for example there are multiple moments when odysseus um, is disapproving of or behaves very aggressively towards in one case killing several of um women and then i i you must have done this too when you when i reviewed Emily Wilson's translation, I looked at a bunch of different translations that I had in my house, which is many, because even though my flat is small because you've been in it, you know this to be true, I still somehow seem to have room for about eight different translations of the Odyssey. I can read it in Greek. I don't need them. Why are you here? Where am I going to sleep? Um, and it was really instructive to see how many of them had translated a word which simply is slave in Greek with the female article, the female word for the in front of it. So it just says in Greek the female slaves. And over and over again, it had been translated as slut or hussy or whore or something like that. And all Emily Wilson or had done... Or just maid, which suggests yeah. that there's some kind of paid transactional employment. Yeah, and as then, opposed to being a slave you, and having mm. having no choice at all. And all she yeah. had done, obviously all she had done was write an absolutely brilliant translation of the Odyssey, but in this particular instance, yeah. was take take that prejudice out. And yet still, people fumed. How dare she? Yeah, dude, you. this is on you. This isn't her and this isn't Homer. It's you. Do you become particularly obsessed? Are there certain works as you go through? I mean, you were saying how many versions of the Odyssey you have. Is there a danger sometimes you go, oh, my God, I'm I'm just trapped in the same book now and there's so many different translations in obsessing about... Oh, I just chuck them out. When, yeah, I, when I run out of space, I, I just chuck them out. I don't worry too much about that, I have to say. I've still got Evie I... and I don't know why I do. What? Is translation of uh, Homer, and I think they were my I've dad's, got, maybe. I've got my dad's. Yeah, and I think I keep them because. Hang on, love. Yeah, I don't know why he let me have them. I guess he must have just realised he wasn't going to read them. Um, but yeah, it's and so I have whatever version of of the Odyssey in English I used at school. I'd got Emily Wilson's because I reviewed it and also because it's wonderful. I'd got the rear because I didn't want to get rid of it. And it's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how this has happened, but somehow I seem to have a flat full of them. Yeah, I don't cling on. I've got Fagel's, Wilson and... Oh, I love Fagel's. <laughs> Despite everything that we've now learned about Fagel's. Um, what have you learned about? Robert Fagel's, oh, it's a wonderful translation. It's great to read out. It's such fun. Da, 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 da. But um, Emily Wilson, who takes no prisoners. She was my tutorial partner at university. Was she? She was great. And she was a star. And she, you know, I learned a huge amount just by sitting with it. Was, she was wonderful. But she, um, she points out that Fagel's sort of massively expands the text, so he, he kind of puts his own fun stuff in, basically. <laughs> Whereas Emily is really kind of disciplined and it's very stripped back, which of course makes it 
that's one of the reasons it's great to as a sort of first go to text to read if if you if you want to read something Latin or Greek, but you know you don't quite know where to start because it's um, it's so economical and it flows so fast and it's and she's done it in beautiful sort of Miltonian yambic pentameter that you know so it feels you know it's a rhythm that we're fairly familiar with in English for kind of long poems and. Oh, it's 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 beautiful. Right. So the question now, let's move on to neuroscience. Yeah. Is uh, how many homers are there? And the reason I ask this is because yeah, Julian Jane. Do you know about Julian Jane's? Yes. The bicameral mind thing, where uh, yes, yes, his, his idea that there's no kind of sense of or or or, or not a developed. Do you know about this? The, the one of his arguments is that uh, we didn't really have a sense of 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 self that we saw the inner voices as being voices from other places, not necessarily from inside us. Oh sure. And then we have a movement. Then there's a point of of kind of evolution and development where you realise, oh, that's my head saying that. Yeah. And he uses the difference between the Iliad and the uh, Odyssey in there. Oh, uh, I'm not sure I would do that. So that's what that's be... what I'm asking. So that's what I want to know. Yeah. Is I, I find people will still be externalising like, right. um, those yeah. things right up till well. I mean, the most mm. obvious example is Hippolytus, Euripides Hippolytus, which is a fifth century BCE play, and in it, it begins with the goddess Aphrodite walking on stage and saying, "Hippolytus doesn't pay me any." due respect, i.e., he's not having sex with anybody, male or female, and I have had up to here with that. So I'm going to destroy him. Um, and then at the end of the play, Artemis, who is the sort of opposite, as it were, of Aphrodite, um, who's always... We Prefers see people to have no sex at all. No sex at all, chaste, but T-E, not E-D, um, comes on and says, well, she's destroyed one of my favourites, spoiler, so I'm going to destroy one of hers. And we would now, I think, see um, a sudden sexual urge as being an internal phenomenon we might describe it as like a midlife crisis that Phaedra has that she suddenly falls for her stepson um or uh perhaps we would just see it as lust or something like that but we would definitely internalize it but in this play it's it's fully external the gods in this instance Aphrodite simply decide to destroy Hippolytus and anybody else who gets in their way Phaedra hasn't done anything wrong to Aphrodite she's perfectly you know dutiful but she just gets destroyed spoiler alert she, she hangs does. herself leaving a suicide note well she does and she does um so i think we would I, I mean, I think it's a really good argument for the idea of the gods as a psychological representation. It's not only what they are in mm. Greek myth, um, but it's sometimes what they are. And that's the fifth century. So I think the suggestion that you could differentiate between two works of somebody we call Homer, who is certainly dozens of people um, writing over, I was going to say dozens of years, but probably longer than that, um, probably a generation or two, you know, these poems were orally composed, so there's rhapsodes, bards, travelling around, singing chunks of these poems at a time. Um, to an, You know, you're not going to get a sort of full day, even though it has been done. The Almeida and the British Museum did a version of the um, Iliad a few years ago, which was just wonderful. Um, all day, the all-day Iliad. Um, and that that's not how these poems were performed. They were constructed over time. And in the last century, in the 20th century, um, you know, some work was done in, I think, Yugoslavia, as it was then, and, you know, folk, and how folk stories were developed there. And they seem to prove relatively conclusively, as much as I guess you can in a non-scientific sense prove things, that the Iliad and the Odyssey had been written in exactly that way, that there were multiple authors in multiple locations, singing and creating and adding to and taking away from. And then at some point they're, for want of a better phrase, codified and put down into a version that we now no, but even then there are 
arguments yeah. about manuscripts. I mean, what Natalie is saying, of course, wouldn't be agreed with by absolutely everybody because you've you've tripped into this enormous, um, still very kind of vibrantly argued thing mm. called the Homeric question. So there are sing- there are sort of still single authorship. I mean, there are those who argue. Not slightly many, different. Well, there, there, there's a fair number of people who argue that the the sort of the, the sort of final composition, drawing on generations of oral composition, provides a sort of such a kind of supremely excellent structure. Yes, that, that, it that it's likely one by to that point. yeah yeah. Who, who but of course it bears it. But yeah. So in other words, the codifier, as you call it, might we might credit with a bit more artistry than perhaps yes. that word suggests. Yeah, yeah. But that, um, yes, and there are, there are neo-analysts on there. So, that, yeah, anyway, this is really is getting into the reads. But there, there, there are still lots of questions about about how these poems come, come to be the poems that, that we know. Well, I think in, I, 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 don't, I know nothing about neuroscience and I, I raise my eyebrows slightly at that theory, but, but hey... What I think is really interesting is that the poems are open to so many interesting theories. You know, they're such open texts and there's so much that one can do with them and think about with them to help us. I mean, have you ever read the work of Jonathan Shea, who is a psychologist working after the Vietnam War? Yes. And he used the poems to think about PTSD in in, um, Vietnam ex-combatants. I mean that that was really really very interesting work. I mean, you know, would you on a quite honestly sit down and say these poems are about PTSD? No, but but actually there are, there are ways of thinking about the kind of rage, let's say, of the Iliad and, and the, the, the last difficult chunk of the Odyssey. Exactly I the, mean, his the violence, is the violence and difficulty of homecoming, at yeah. least as a metaphor for the often violent and difficult homecomings that combatants um, undergo and in yeah. some cases inflict on others because there can be... Because you know, they can be turned out or in. Exactly. Or so, yeah, I mean, this is part of the joy of the poems is that they, they're, they're kind of living, quivering with life, you know. We can think about modern life through them as, to their, you know, I mean, that's the, for Homer. Yeah, that's the joy of of being able to rework them or whether you're translating them or, in my case, pilfering heavily from it um, to write a novel. Pilfering from Homer is it's what Lipschitz has been doing yeah. since. Yeah. Well, Aeschylus says down. that his plays are slices from the banquet of Homer. Absolutely. It's like, well, I'm in good company then, huh? Exactly. So what are you currently pilfering then? Oh, I stole everything. <laughs> I stole everything. A Thousand Ships steals. Um, its spine is the Euripides play, The Trojan Women. It has... Uh, a second um, subsidiary spine, I suppose, which is the Odyssey, which is told in my version by Penelope, uh, Odysseus's wife. Um, all of the war is taken from um, both poems that do exist, like the Iliad, and poems that no longer exist except in tiny fragments, uh, like the Aethiopis. Once upon a time, there was kind of connective tissue between the end of the Iliad and the start of a poem called the Aethiopis, which told the story of Memnon, the great Ethiopian, the great black hero who fought for Troy, and Penthesilea, the great Amazon warrior, female hero who fought for Troy. And we just don't have that poem anymore. We've only got a few tiny, tiny fragments of it or descriptions of it. Air conditioning. Air conditioning is angry with did you hear that noise as well? Ah. No, no, you, there's nothing you can do there. 
Oh, it's, it's the over. end times. Um, so, um, Charlotte, what are you at the moment nicking to uh, make your own personal game from? Sorry, I mean, are you working on anything well, at the moment? Well, I'll tell you about the Red Thread also steals from the Odyssey because the Odyssey is a sort of classically labyrinthine text, in my view, as are, quite, as are epic poems in general. The Odyssey more than The some. Odyssey more than most because the Odyssey has this great looping, dynamic... Um, construction with flashbacks and thing and embedded stories so all the stories that uh we sort of immediately think about with the odyssey like the cyclops and the lotus eaters and circe and so on those are all stories told by odysseus um in the first person as it were when he's somebody where he's somewhere else or washed up on another salty shore uh and and also, it's a poem that, that really struggles to end. <laughs> yeah, he gets back in, like, book 16 or 17. So it doesn't like, how are there another eight you books think, to go? You think he's going to... Yeah, it, it, so it has it has a sort of delayed exit, which I think yeah. is quite labyrinthine. So, yes, f- yeah, feasting at the table of host of Homer, that's, that's, that's a big thing. Thanks, Homer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's our pleasure, Robin. Yeah. The, uh, where, is, are you doing any... Um, uh, events uh, in the near future that we can, uh, I presume, I'll just quickly say that I imagine this is going to be going out sometime in October. Not, am I? Not this side of, not this, no, not for the rest of the year. Actually, I'm doing a few early next year, but they, uh, they're they too far away, I'd say. I'm doing something at Gladstone's Library in, in near Chester in February. And I'm going to... Um, I can't remember somewhere in April, but that's that's really shit. So don't put. Do you that get out any kind well. of grand gatherings? Like you know, when all crime writers get together and we hear these wonderful things, it's it's these you know fantastic kind of meetings in Harrogate. Are the similar for the classes? Are, are, yeah, are the... Charlotte's book launch is when, or my book launch, <laughs> when we all convene somewhere. But we obscure. should do a massive festival with all of us, and then we could then yeah, we could be Hathers like. Has a classics festival. I know, but it doesn't but have it's... a drinking element. No, in the it's evening. during one day. Yeah. So... Yeah, and that's quite soon, actually. Um, are you going to have it? No, I'm NFI oh. this year, darling. Lazy. And uh, <laughs> Natalie, you're, as well as uh, doing various different things with all your uh, nominees for the book prize. Yes, I'm still touring. Um, I'll be touring until the end of the year. So um, if this is October, then I've already been to a bunch of places and I have a bunch more to go there at www.nataliehaines.com. So please look there because I clearly can't remember where I'm supposed to be or when, ever. Um and I record the Series 5 of my Radio 4 show, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, um, on the 15th of October and the 11th of November. Um, but I think it'll be too late to get tickets for that by now. Um, in which case, can you please listen to it when it goes out on the radio, which yeah. I think is the 22nd or 23rd of December. That's when the new series starts. Lovely. Thank I you very much. I haven't written it yet, Robin. I haven't written it. Nah, no one's ever written it in the last <laughs> minute. You'll be all right. Yeah. You don't have pro. to write it. It's just cutting and pasting. You just told me. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> easy. It's not the novels, not the radio shows. Oh, is You're it? You're a trained oh, professional. Oh, I used to find the best. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show and everything we do at Cosmic Shambles. Cosmicshambles.com for all the tour dates for Robin and Signals and Sea Shambles, obviously at the Albert Hall next year. 
We'll be back next week, of course, with another new episode when I'm not sure who I guess will be because I've left my laptop in the other room. So that'll be a surprise for all of us. Have a great week. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Thank you.